I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the Beyond COVID podcast with RAIN Network. In this podcast series, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Dr. Fred Southwick, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida's College of Medicine, and Dr. Bill Lang, an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in on this week's conversation. Fred and Bill, again, uh, thanks and um, for our conversations before the beginning of this podcast, um, it's appropriate uh, to get sort of a, uh, uh, maybe hopefully a, uh, a bit of a um, final COVID uh, update, uh, although I guess, you know, you never know till you know. Uh, but Bill, why don't we turn to you, and I know some additional uh, updates about other issues that are on the horizon. Sure. Well, the big thing, and the reason I think it's fair to say that this this may very well be the last, at least last scheduled um, COVID podcast. I'll leave that up to the team. But that's because both the United States and the World Health Organization over the last two weeks have ended their respective public health emergencies as it relates to SARS-CoV-2 and its resulting infectious disease, COVID-19. What that means is that in their assessment, it's not that the, the virus has gone away, but it's that it has evolved into an endemic, meaning it's just there. It's just in the world, it's just there. An endemic circulating virus and disease reflect, reflect, uh, respectively. With, however, as opposed to what it was at the beginning, we have good levels of immunity throughout the world that is that are highly protective, not 100% protective, but we also have an attenuated virulence of the currently circulating virus. So we're, we're felt fairly immune to it as a global population, and the virus is not the same danger that it was when we started. So what that is, it means that COVID-19 has been reduced to being a, not something that we're not worried about at all, but it's at a level of a concern that I think is, this is very subjective, but I think it's at a level of concern that we could say is similar to the ongoing concern we have about, in, have about influenza. In fact, at this point, in many ways, the level of concern regarding COVID-19 may even be uh, less because while there are still many people out there catching the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the risk of a serious disease outbreak, it, and again, this is just an opinion. I don't. There's no hard data to support this, but the risk of a serious outbreak is probably less than that of a serious outbreak from a new, you know, heretofore unseen strain of influenza. And I'm, I'm going to stop there for a minute. And I'll, that that last comment, especially, I'd love to hear Fred's thoughts on. Yeah, yeah, Bill, I, 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 I agree. I think it was the right decision at this point. Uh, the, I think the herd immunity, we've achieved herd immunity. Uh, that is, enough people are immune that it's very difficult for it to spread. The one uh, caveat, and it's true of influenza too, it's still of danger of those over 70. Uh, I think that particular group and patients that are immunocompromised, even the, the variants 
uh, in the Omicron group, they're all in the, they're still bearing predominantly that sequence. Uh, the virulence is lower, but we do know that uh, when individuals are not particularly healthy to start with, uh, it still can be fatal, and that's where I think all the deaths are going to be. So I think for those that are over age 70, have uh, underlying immune immune deficiencies, I think they're still going to be need to be cautious. But the rest of us uh, probably can go about our business without too much worry. Well, I think I agree with you completely. And I think that part of the reason for the lower lower concern about this is that we have multiple things we can do. Um, to people who have risk factors can take precautions, whether it's wearing masks in crowded settings. You know, people know how to take these precautions. We have a vaccine that that is is pretty good. Now there are certainly there are concerns about the vaccine. I think there I think there are some reasonable concerns about the vaccine, but for most people, for the general population, the vaccine does what we needed to do, decreases risk, decreases deaths. And then third, I, in, in my opinion, I feel like the treatments that we have available at this point for COVID are seem to be more effective than the treatments that we have for influenza. I mean, we have good treatments for influenza, but in the older age groups, some of them can sometimes have problems, whereas Paxlovid and then the inpatient treatments um, are, are all have all been shown to be, be excellent as long as you get care early enough in the disease. Yeah, I agree with you, Bill. I think that's the key. And for those that are older, uh, it's really our immunocompromised. It's important that when you get the symptoms, to seek medical attention immediately because that five-day, early five-day window is the key. If you can get Paxlovid or if you need hospitalization, remdesivir, uh, you really can uh, abort the progression of the disease dramatically and and reduce death. And, and if, you, with, uh, if you use Paxlovid, you can uh, prevent being hospitalized. So, uh, yeah, we have very good armamentarium. Then the issue of the vaccine, one of the big questions is, when do you get a booster if you're susceptible? And it does look like uh, the uh, boosters do, they do wane over about three to four months uh, as far as the protection from infection. Uh, the, but the question is, that's just a symptomatic disease. How long will they protect against hospitalization and death? I don't think that's totally clear at this point. I don't know, Bill. Do you know uh, no, any data on that? No, I agree with you. It's not not totally clear. Um, so what I'm doing with my patients, and and I, I'd really be interested in what what your thoughts are, is my older patients over 65 to 70. I'm telling them, yeah, you should get a booster. But right now, I'm telling them, but wait. I mean, we're right now we're coming into the summer season where respiratory diseases have are much much lower rates. So I'm saying wait and get it in you know maybe Septemberish time frame so that you have good coverage through the fall cold flu COVID season. Yeah, I would agree. And and actually, a lot of people are giving it at the same time as the influenza vaccine. And I think that's a reasonable. One stop shopping, get them both at one time. Um, and on that, there that's what we were doing early on. There's been some question about that, but right now there, there, there's a lot of studies going on. That's the other reason I'm telling people to wait a little bit. Let's see what these studies say about when, about timing along mm -hmm. with other vaccines. Um, so I think that the kind of one of the important messages to take home from all this is that 
because these various global organizations have said that the, the there's no more public health emergency, that doesn't mean that there's an end to all risk, but it means that the assessment of the public health community is that surveillance and management of the virus and disease can be handled the same way we handle other major infectious diseases like influenza. So don't don't think this means it's gone. It just means that okay now we, now we've got ways that we can handle it, and that's what we're going to do from now now on. Yeah, I, I completely agree. One other thing I just want to emphasize is there's been so much, so many questions about masks and whether they work. Uh, there is no question that N95 mask works if you wear it properly. That is the key. Wear it at the right times and wear it and have it fit properly. Uh, they do work, and therefore those that are more susceptible when they are out in public should wear a K95 or an N95. I, I agree. If you're susceptible, take the take the uh, every precaution you can to keep from getting it. Because even if even though we have ways to treat it, you don't want to have to take treatment if you don't have to. So let me um, just I want to clarify uh, one thing here because one of the predominant questions that we get um, from our clients, if people and Fred, I know you know you, you mentioned people who are susceptible and are dealing with other types of illnesses. If you are 65 or older, and there are a lot of messages that are on TV, um, is it advisable to get a booster? And what I'm hearing a little bit from you, Bill, is that um, perhaps it can and should be deferred past the summer when respiratory viruses you know, wane and people are more outside and things like that. What is what 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 the best judgment around um, people who are sixty or sixty-five and older? Yeah, sure. So let me the party line the the official recommendation from the uh, CDC and FDA is that if you are in that risk age group by age or by having risk factors, and it has been more than three to four months since you got your last vaccine dose that you should get the new vaccine. If you have not gotten a uh, bivalent vaccine, the newer vaccine yet, you should get it, period. I'm saying that, you know, I'm not the public, I'm not the public health authorities in the United States, so take this with a grain of salt. If it was me, I'd wait until a little bit closer to cold and flu season because that's when your risk of getting disease is going to be higher. But that's a personal opinion. That's not what the, the authorities are saying. So you, know, you um, take, your, take all the information you can and make your own decisions. Yeah, Bill, I think it's an important point. Remember, when you get a booster, it will be good for three to four months. So if, you're, if you want protection during the time when the disease activity is higher, you should probably wait. Um, if, if in your area disease activity is very low, then you don't get as much benefit from the vaccine. I think it's all a risk-benefit uh, and timing, etc. So, so I think you have to individualize to what area, where you are, how much you're going to be in public, and uh, those things are very important to consider as well as just not uh, every... I don't think it's realistic for everybody to get a vaccine every four months. Right. Uh, that's just, I don't think that's going to work very well. And, and 
Who knows how many shots, whether we'll see some unusual side effects if you do that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's why that's why I say I, I tell people to hold off. But you actually brought up one other interesting point. And you said that you, you mentioned about seeing what things are doing in your community. Well, along those lines, two weeks ago, the actually just last week, the uh, CDC stopped publishing the local rates. You know, remember, they made the uh, the map, the global, the national map that showed every, by every county in the United States, whether you were at high, medium, medium or low impact. Well, they stopped publishing that last week because they realized that the data is bad. It's just not it's just not good data out there. They really could no longer track what the incidence rate was because people aren't getting tested. People are getting getting it all the time and just treating it like a cold because that's what it's acting like. So there it really is difficult to objectively determine if you were in a high, medium or low risk, high, medium or low impact area. Um, subjectively, you probably could get a feel from local media, local health department announcements if they are seeing issues, but that's about it. You're, you can't, there is no no website that you can go to today to say, oh, what's my local risk? It's just, it's just not there. Yeah, that's, that is a big problem, but it makes sense. It's a huge effort to collate all this data and if it's it's a minor, it's not a great benefit if, because the activity is low. That's reasonable. In, in the larger cities, they're using uh, PCR uh, of the uh, sewage to try to assess whether or not uh, there's increased activity. But that's just going to be in large cities. And then the only other way is hospitalizations. But if the CDC isn't uh, collecting those anymore. We really don't have any good measure for under, knowing whether or not uh, the infection is taking off. You know, I was going to say, Bill and Fred, um, you know, this is highly anecdotal, but within, you know, over the last call it, three to four weeks, I've heard from so many people um, who avoided COVID for two and a half, three years, whatever, and just got it, recently got it. And these are not just people um, in New York, but um, I'll say Florida, Texas, California. Um, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit about the the old uh, axiom: when my uh, when my neighbor loses a job, it you know that's part of the recession. When I lose a job, it's a depression. And and so sort of where you stand depends upon where you sit. But at least anecdotally, uh, not that. This, none of the individuals, fortunately, had to be hospitalized. But, um, you know, they, they, they I, I won't use the word on the podcast, but they say, you know, like this really S-U-C blank blank S, okay? Um, and they have felt it for, you know, two weeks. It's been a, a slow slog uh, to getting better. So it is interesting that the statistics are not being kept, but... Uh, anecdotally, and these, you know, people in New York are talking about, you know, not only they got it, but you know, their relatives, their neighbors, whatever. Uh, something is still going going around, but uh, you know, the predominant point, I guess, is that people are not being hospitalized. So, yeah, uh, David, as far yeah. as that goes, in, in the very beginning of April, I had managed not to get it, and I got it from my wife. So. 
I, I can speak to that. It is true. And the person that actually originally got it went to the NCAA basketball tournament. And think about it, you know, that space, everybody cheering and cry, you know, cheering closed, and yelling. Closed wow, environment. A closed yep. environment, shoulder yep. to shoulder. Right? Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in any event, and, and Bill, I'm just going to circle back to something you said at the beginning. Uh, this is not going to be our last uh, podcast. Maybe we'll be touching other subjects, but as we indicated, we're shifting to the new and the next and what's on the horizon, both in terms of things we have to worry about, but also, uh, most importantly, I think innovations around uh, infectious diseases and the control and what can be done. So I know there was a uh, positive uh, development around uh, RSV and and the vaccine, and maybe you guys can take a few minutes to remind people about RSV and and you know sort of the population that can get hit with it, and you know do we is this in fact good news that there is a vaccine? Well, well, it is. If if you you know, most over the past year, people heard of RX, RSV. Many people heard of it for the first time, because we had a, a national and in many ways global RSV outbreak just this last winter. It was kind of as people were starting to open up from COVID. The the resistance to RSV had been down because RSV normally circulates. Adults get it and don't really get very sick, but it was it's enough that people are constantly getting kind of a natural immunity to RSV. We had this big outbreak, so people knew about it. But before that, people only thought of RSV as a disease of children. Kids get RSV, and RSV can often lead to uh, fairly significant respiratory uh, hospitalization for children's. In fact, it is it is the most common cause of respiratory-related hospitalizations in children, not flu. Um, but in fact, it's much more important in the older population. RSV causes up to about 14,000 deaths per year in those over 60 in the United States, and just it's about 300 in children under five. Now, put that in comparison, the flu deaths range, and it's a broad range, uh, somewhere between 12 and 52,000 deaths a year, depending on the deaths. So this is maybe not generally speaking as many deaths a year as flu, but pretty close to it. And at the current rate that we're seeing for COVID, and I'm, that's all, all I'm saying is the current rate, which is about 200 deaths a day. What is that? It's about 70. If you were, t if you were to extrapolate that over the year, that's roughly 70,000 deaths per year. So these are all in the tens of thousands deaths, tens of thousands of deaths per year. So a vaccine that can reduce, significantly reduce the rate of RSV in adults over 60 can be very valuable to have a significant impact on those 14,000 per year. The vaccine is a single dose vaccine given right for right now, this may change, for right now, a one-time vaccine. It's been tested in 25,000 people and it was a three-year test, not a three-month or six-month test, over a three-year test. And the only significantly noted adverse event was that there was a new onset of atrial fibrillation in 10 people out of the 25,000. Now, in the over 60 age group, 10 out of 25,000 is pretty close to the baseline new onset of atrial fibrillation. So it's not a hard, hard um, 
uh, flag that this is a problem at all. So this looks like a good vaccine. It looks like a safe vaccine from the data that we've had. It has been approved by the FDA, and this this can hopefully reduce these 14,000 deaths per year pretty significantly. But what this means is for this adult population, now you're going to be getting immunized for flu, COVID, RSV, pneumonia. Now, these aren't all annual vaccines, but there are a lot of vaccines that, that people over 60 need to be thinking about. Yeah, Bill, I, I, I've seen a fair number of RSV patients hospitalized in the elderly population. We see a, it's a big problem in transplant patients who are on immunosuppressive. RSV can be uh, devastating, can cause very severe pneumonia, um, similar to, to COVID, actually. And uh, can, it can be fatal. And we're really, uh, the only drug is ribavirin, which does not work that well. So you... If you get it, um, it can be very severe and there's not very good treatment. So I, a vaccine is a really welcome and very good news. All right, I want to, just in the few minutes uh, left, I know both of you are always thinking of what possibly could be on the horizon that could go wrong. Is there anything in particular that you guys are watching? Actually, the only thing I have that is, is not a infectious disease issue, but it's something that I think may have a huge impact on, on uh, national health expenditures. And that's for very good reasons. The U.S. Public, the, the US Preventive Services Task Force is in the midst of changing the recommendation for mammograms, decreasing from age 50 to age 40 in most cases. So if you take the number of women in the United States, multiply that by you know, by 10, the number of mammograms that you need to get between age 40 and 50, that's going to be a significant increase in healthcare costs because mammograms are covered by, by um, typically covered by insurance, um, which means eventually covered by the employer or the, on the employee. So this is going to have a big economic effect. Medically, great. I think it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Economically, it's going to be a, a big hit. I don't think people have really appreciated how big a hit that's going to be. Yeah, David, I, I don't see anything on the horizon. We always keep an eye in Africa for the hemorrhagic fevers. Yeah, I, I know you are. But uh, yeah. those, the Marburg and, um, you know, that they are a worry, but so far, and Ebola. But so far, uh, the nice, good thing about them, they're not, they're, their contagiousness is relatively very low compared to COVID. Very low. And, and the other important thing with them, and one of the reasons we do not tend to have huge widespread outbreaks, is when people are contagious with any of the, the hemorrhagic diseases, uh, viral hemorrhagic diseases, they're sick. I mean, sick enough that people want to stay away from them because they look sick, they're bleeding from multiple orifices. Um, so they don't tend to, while they're, they can be fairly infectious, nobody wants to be around them. So they don't tend to transmit to many people. Yeah, I think that was the big the big problem with SARS-CoV-2 is that 40, we know now 40% of people uh, who are, can spread the virus are, are an asymptomatic. And that was very different from SARS-CoV-1, which was more similar to the hemorrhagic fevers in that they, it was when you had symptoms that you predominantly spread the infection. And that's why that particular virus disappeared relatively quickly. So um, I want to thank both of you. Conversation to be continued. 
And uh, I would like to, uh, Fred, I know, you know, your involvement with, uh, broadly, with infectious diseases, et cetera, and Bill, you indicated that, you know, you have some prior experience, um, but it is becoming somewhat topical within Washington corridors to begin to think about, uh, and, you know, it makes sense. I know Bill Gates has spoken about it um, after witnessing, you know, the, the consequences of this pandemic is whether uh, the weaponization of viruses is something we should be thinking about, and if so, how should we be preparing? And that's not a doomsday, that's not an alarmist, et cetera, but uh, that's a bit of a, as someone said to me from Washington, we're just trying to be realistic about it. Um, so I look forward to, in the next podcast, perhaps discussing uh, that with you. And I know, again, Bill, you've given thought to this over the years, but Fred, uh, I know that you've been a, a leader in both the detection of emerging pathogens and also thinking about how should we be preparing for, I'll call it, whatever is next. So again, thank you guys for the time today, and I look forward to a continued discussion. Thanks. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both real-world and virtual events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. Thanks for listening.